We're listening to David K. Johnson at the Commonwealth Club in California, and he's talking about Trump's America. This is about, it's from 2018. It's very prescient. All his predictions came true. Thank you. David, can, you know, in terms of the collusion issues with the campaign, but doesn't it go much deeper in terms of Russian, and there's no question that Putin, you can run us through, to the best of your knowledge, sort of the linkage and the investment of the Russian oligarchs or money, especially in real estate. Let me make a suggestion about how to think about Vladimir Putin and influence. Vladimir oh. Putin uh, believes democracy is a joke. He said this repeatedly. He has uh, said they want to undermine democracy. The oligarchs, who are the biggest criminal gang in the world, who use their heads and repeatedly well, try okay, to not only uh, oh, upset the political but they have are raped, tried to raid the wealth of the West. No. Uh, the whole Icelandic bank no. scandal was a Russian scheme to steal the pension wealth of England Netherlands. If Vladimir Putin, you think like the people on Sand Hill Road, the venture capitalists in Silicon Valley. You got all these opportunities to do things to undermine or compromise people or develop people who may be unwitting agents. Lots of opportunities. So out of a thousand, you fund a hundred. Ninety-five of them are a bust. They didn't work out. Uh, four of them, maybe Carter Page is in this group, uh, provide you with enough to justify the ninety-five that went nowhere. And then you get Amazon. Donald Trump is Vladimir Putin's Amazon. And he hit the jackpot. And the Russians have been grooming Donald Trump since 1987 when they provided the, uh, Donald Trump and his wife with a trip to Russia and royally treated them while they were there. And Donald Trump is not a sophisticated man. He's not a sophisticated thinker. Um, uh, he's not the kind of guy who would even realize he's slowly being sucked in and being compromised. And Carter Page, and you've seen him on TV, and he's talking about a weird dude. Did you have a hard day, um, Carter Page was involved with two known Russian spies. Right? There may be three, but two for sure. So it's entirely reasonable that the U.S. counterintelligence operation is looking at Carter Page. What are you doing with these people we know to be spies? Why are you meeting with them? Why are you doing business with him? And now what are you doing with the Trump campaign? And you're named Donald Trump's uh, you know, uh, advisor on international relations, even though you don't have any chops for the job. If you or I were FBI counterintelligence guys, we'd say, yeah, but follow that very carefully. And that's what the Nunes memo is in part about. And so the way to think about all this is, you know, we have an adversary, a hostile foreign power, that is determined to weaken our position and that certainly did not want Hillary Clinton in the White House, somebody I don't hold any book for. She tried to get me fired at the New York Times. Um, but he didn't yeah, want her because she would have made yeah. him feel enormous pain up to the edge of going to war to get him out of the Crimea. She was very clear about that. She wasn't going to go to war over Crimea, but she was going to make him pay if he didn't give up Crimea. He wants to keep Crimea. He wants his warm water cool. So how much, I mean, in terms of the mother, or maybe you're aware of some of these things, but in terms of following the money, the old adage, where, where is that going? Where do you think it could go in terms of showing the relationship, the potential for money laundering? You know, a lot of these things are in the buzz. Or in well, the... when Trump Tower opened, 
technically in November 30th of 1983, but really in early 84. It was one of only two prime residential buildings in New York where anonymous wealth could make a purchase. You know, the city of the state of New York's co-op laws, if they had, if the South had discovered them, the civil rights movement would have failed. Um, under those co-op laws, you want to buy an apartment in New York City, you have to show your tax returns and, um, uh, you know, how your dog barks and everything else before you are allowed to buy into a building. Trump and Olympia Tower, owned by the family of the Anassas family, would take uh, companies that you don't know who they are. So you could walk in and say, hi, um, I, uh, I'm a lawyer. I represent a company called Snow Inc. in the Cayman Islands. You know, it, it might be a ski lodge in Colorado, and it might be a cocaine cartel in Medellin. They don't care. They just say, oh, well, yes, and here's how much the uh, apartment is, and these were premium prices because you got to hide your identity. Trump Tower is full of criminals. It's the most watched building in New York City by Interpol, the FBI, the New York State Police, and has been for years. And so Donald Trump made a lot of money off of selling apartments to these people. And when he got in trouble and he couldn't pay his bankers, and he told me one day he's worth $3 million just before I revealed he wasn't a billionaire. And you know, I said to Donald at one point, Donald, if you're a billionaire, why can't you pay your bills? You're really a billionaire. Who's ever heard of a billionaire who can't pay his bills? Because he's not a billionaire. When the banks cut him off, except for Deutsche Bank, the preferred bank for Russian money laundering, um, he began to get influxes of capital from Russians in various ways. Uh, the most outrageous deal, the easiest to see what was going on, is two miles from Mar-a-Lago, some nouveau riche people built a house that would make the Texas oil barons of the 50s look like masters of sophisticated taste. And I looked at this building and went, what hath God wrought? And he buys it for 40 or $41 million. In 2008, Donald declares that an act of God has destroyed the real estate market. The market is, he says, dead in all of America. He tries to get out of a loan to Deutsche Bank of $40 million that's coming due. And along comes Dmitry Rublovlev, one of the oligarchs, who pays Donald $100 million, 95 plus a commission, as Donald tells the story, for this property. Well, once it becomes an issue, and it would have been a big issue if he had been a state senator or a mayor, Donald's, the cover story that's put out is that Rublovlev is getting divorced and he's a multi-billionaire, and he was hiding money from his wife. Now I want you to just imagine you're trying to hide money from your spouse in anticipation of a divorce. Would you go pay two or three times what something is worth? I mean, why not just take a batch to your money and burn it up? You would buy things at a discount. And they were putting money in Donald's pocket. One of the sons came back from a conference in Moscow and said, the Russians are giving us all the money to buy the golf courses. So is any of that illegal? Is that where Mueller's going, do you think? It depends on what's going on. It could be illegal. It could not be illegal. I mean, well, that's what Trump is so the, concerned the, about. The, the, the answer I always taught my law students to every question is, it depends. <laughs> so, yes, I mean, I, I'm sure there's clear going to be clear criminality involving this money laundering, deals done in Panama, ripping people off. The previous book, uh, The Making of Donald Trump, has a lot about these corrupt deals and how he ripped various people off. And, and it isn't just Donald. When they were trying to sell condos in, uh, uh, in Baja, California, 
where to get there you'd have to drive through Tijuana, which is right now one of the most violent cities in America, I think, in the Americas. I think only Tegucigalpa is, is more dangerous. Um, they held an event to encourage people to buy, and Ivanka Trump comes and to persuade one woman to uh, do the deal. She says, well, you know, I'm getting a unit too. Maybe I'll come by and borrow a cup of sugar. I mean, these are polished swindlers and grifters. Uh, well, David's point of view is clear. Uh, and I, it, near the end of the book, uh, you quote a, a sociologist named Johnson, I, and I recommend you all, because I was thinking this book would end with something uplifting. Mm -mm. Uh, so I want to just, this is another sentence you wrote, and then uh, we're getting close to the end here. But how, here's what, you basically go through an, an imagery, and it's, you can imagine sitting next to someone like Donald Trump on a plane, and your own impressions of him, and you go through that scenario. But at the end of that scenario, I won't get into all the details. Uh, but you basically say, this is after you're hearing this Trump speaking to you, your stranger. You would, I imagine, fear you were to use a Trumpian term, stuck next to a nut job, until your trip ended. How can it be that millions of people do not see Trump for what he is, a narcissistic, ill-informed, thriving old blowhard? So, do you have a, I mean, you've thought a lot about this. And what does it say? over my life. Yeah, but I mean, also, this is really, and you say this in the book, Trump is Trump, and it's really to go about America and who we are and what we are as a country. Because, again, if we were in a different part of the country, you know, your reception would be very different. I mean, you're traveling around the United States now. I, I don't know what the audiences are like. You're on radio shows. But why doesn't this stick? I mean, there's this divide around culture, around values, about belief. And there are many people uh, who think, you know, as you said, maybe they may take these treats right. and to protect well, them. Well, one of the ways I think about it is when you and I were in high school at the same time, mm -hmm. there were ads that if you put this stuff in your hair called Brill Cream, the girls would be all over you, right? Sounds absolutely ridiculous, right? They sold a lot of books. When my oldest son was about to go to college, um, they ran the, I think I have the timing right, they ran the uh, these ads where if you popped up on a certain brand of beer in your dormitory, the Swedish bikini team would show up. A particularly absurd idea, and it sold a lot of that brand of beer. People respond to these images, and we're manipulable. And so Donald, through his TV show, sold this image of himself as being this fabulously, fabulously successful businessman. And the media plays a role in this. Trump, you know, said, I'm worth 8.7 billion, 10 billion, more than 10 billion. At one point he said 11 billion. After he became president, he asked if he could file his financial disclosure statement without signing it under penalty of perjury. And when he was told no, he filed it, and it's 1.4 billion. And that's exaggerated, too, because he lists his Scottish golf courses, where he has to report revenues and profit or loss, as more than $50 million. He's characterized them as being worth more than $100 million. They're losing money. I don't know about you, but I don't think I'd spend $100 million to buy a money-losing Scottish golf course that doesn't even have revenue to justify that kind of price. So there's a lot of cultural forces at work. But the ersatz experience of television, we haven't fully adapted to. Uh, you know, Vance Packard, 1958, wrote a book, The Hidden Persuaders. Why do you pick up the red box rather than the blue box? Uh, and Donald is a real master of how to get you to look at, you know, pay attention to the sizzle and ignore that there is no stake. 
It'd be fun to have you and Donald Trump on the stage, and we have a surprise guest. Come on in. Uh, but unfortunately, we've reached the point in our program where there's time. Only one last question. Uh, it's a two-minute warning, and here's a question from the audience, which may be lead to a hopeful answer, but potentially a solution. And the question is, hard to imagine, it's worse than I think, but aside from the midterm elections and gubernatorial races, what are the three most important points we need to act upon to counter the damage? Oh, I, I like that. Well, first of all, uh, you know, I'm a very, op I'm optimistic. Among other things, you can't be the father of eight children and not be optimistic. Um, number one, you need to listen to people who think Donald is terrific and people who disagree with you sympathetically, you know, and find out why they believe the things they do. Uh, you don't get anywhere by telling them they're stupid, they don't know what they're doing. Uh, many people who support Donald Trump, you know, may not know jack about politics, but if you were sitting in a, as, and I've done this, sat in, sitting in a blue-collar bar in Michigan or Ohio or western New York where I live dressed in the right attire, and something happens on the TV with a sports game, you will see the most incredible analytical skills at work because people are engaged in these things. So win people over, cajole them, make that word part of your life, cajole people to think things may be different. Um, the second thing is don't just post things on the internet and vent, act. Make sure you're registered to vote, make sure your family and friends are registered to vote. Uh, on Before election day, arrange to go to some district that is turnable and go help. Drive people to the polls. If, if Enough, if they had done that in Wisconsin during the recalls, instead of trying to outspend the Koch brothers on ads, imagine unions trying to outspend the Koch brothers on ads, uh, Scott Walker, I don't think, would be governor of Wisconsin. Because at the end of the day, it's only the votes that matter. But it's more than that. You've got to get people to vote. you got to get them to, to the polls. And thirdly, um, start a discussion about what kind of America we want to have. This country was founded by people who embraced the Enlightenment, the idea of reason uh, and fact. And its purpose, I believe, is to ennoble the human spirit and set it free to see what human beings can be. But there's always a tug by people who want to have an authoritarian telling them what to do that will extinguish that spirit. And you want to get people to think about what kind of America do you want? Do you want the kind of America where today you can't walk into a courthouse without being searched and the police have semi-automatic rifles? Do you want to have an America where we have children, reports of children all over the country being told, go back to Mexico or go back to Egypt or wherever and insulted because of the color of their skin or the way their hair is? And women being treated the way that we see after the Billy Bush tape. Talk about the positive. Talk about what we can be. What we can be. What we can be. Thank you. Okay. Well said. Our thanks to David K. Johnson, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, founder of DCReport.org and author of the new book, It's Even Worse Than You Think, What the Trump Administration is Doing to America. We also thank our audiences here and on radio, television, and the Internet. 
We want to remind everyone here that copies of Mr. Johnson's book are for sale, and he'll be pleased to sign books outside this room immediately following the program. I'm Robert Rosenthal, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, the place where you're in the know, is adjourned. and I am a member of the Board of Directors of the CJF, and I've also been a long-term <clears throat> supporter of the CJF through various corporate CGF. lives over the years. It is my pleasure to welcome you tonight to tonight's J-Talk. It promises to be an informed look at the bleeding edge of today's investigative journalism. Of course, we would not be story. here this evening without the generous and ongoing support of BMO Financial Group, and we'd also like to thank Sizian, who has been a stalwart supporter of the CJF for many, many years. For those of you who like to share this event on social media, please add our hashtag, hashtag CGFJTalk. And if you add at Suzanne Craig, you might just have the honor of being flamed by at real Donald Trump. Tonight's subject will illuminate just how things are different now for investigative journalists. During Watergate, Woodward and Bernstein followed the money until it got to the president. Today, we know it's the president's money but investigative reporters are deconstructing his wealth to see where it came from. Covering this story, you have to walk like an accountant, talk like a real estate developer, and think like a lawyer who's trying to bury the truth in obscure and opaque filings. 20 years ago, I was in RBC's corporate communications department dealing with Suzanne as she was covering the biggest business story of the day. It was becoming increasingly clear that the bank mergers were not going to happen, and she continued her full-court press that she started when the mergers were announced 11 months earlier. Suzanne was always professional and was fun to watch in action, but I have to say a small part of me was relieved when the Globe sent her to New York. It is now my pleasure to introduce someone who's going to tell you even more about Suzanne, an award-winning investigative journalist and the author, author of six books, he was the senior producer for CBC's The Fifth Estate for five years. As a documentary writer and director, he covered wars, corruption, and human rights in Iraq, Afghanistan, Russia, Africa, and the Middle East. His feature articles have appeared in The Globe and Mail, The Toronto Star, The New York Times, and USA Today. His books have tackled organized crime, the justice system, and human trafficking. He's currently working on his next book, and is training journalists in Europe and the Middle East. Ladies and gentlemen, Julian Schiff. Thank you. Thank you all. You're in for a real treat tonight. Um, I first met Suzanne a couple of years ago. I was, I was uh, speaking at an investigative conference in Sweden, and the organizer said, could you get somebody from the New York Times to come to talk about this new president and what's happening? Um, so I, I, I called uh, uh, Suzanne up, and she agreed to, to come. And, and um, we did a session very similar to this, and we'll, we'll talk about one of those stories, about her first tax return story on Trump. And when she shows up in Sweden, she says, I almost didn't make it because I'm working on this really big story. They wanted me to keep working on it, you know, maybe, you know, like, because we can get it nailed in the next couple of weeks. So, you know, she, she shows up That's anyways. That's the story that just got published two weeks ago. So, <laughs> yeah. 
she sews up anyways, and then we, you know, we were somewhat, we had to rush down to Stockholm because there was a terrorist attack in the middle of the conference. We meet six months later in Banff, and I go, hey, how's it going? How's that story book? Oh, it's terrific. It's an amazing story. David Bairstow says it's like skiing on a on virgin snow where no one has gone, right? I keep waiting and waiting, and, and friends are emailing me, and I'm wondering if Sue is still working at the New York Times. And then, of course, you all saw that huge bombshell. What we're going to do tonight is we're going to take you behind the scenes of that bombshell and show you some amazing details about how Sue got to the New York Times, how she knew Trump before, um, and uh, the huge digging that she and the rest of her team did. Quick bio, um, when I called Sue up, I kind of said, hey, you know, I'm from Canada, I work at the CBC, would you consider coming to Sweden? You kind of have to introduce yourself to Americans, and much to my surprise, she said, I know all about, you know, I'm Canadian. Um, some of you may not know that, but Sue actually started as a summer intern at the Calgary Herald in 1990, her first full-time uh, job was just down the road at the Windsor Star. She wrote for the Globe and Mail and the Financial Post at the Globe and Mail. She won the National Newspaper Award in Canada for business and uh, the Michener Award, which is Canada, the equivalent of Canada's uh, Pulitzer. Um, and then making Graham happy, she uh, left <laughs> Toronto, became a staff writer for the Wall Street Journal. Uh, in 2010, she, she started at the New York Times, um, continuing to report on Wall Street and the New York State government, and finally Trump. Now, tonight we're going to focus on the great work that she did with David Bairstow and her, and her colleague, uh, Russ Butner. Um, what um, you, you're going to see right now, a brief little excerpt um, from a documentary uh, uh, that's airing on Showtime about their work. Uh, let's cue up the little video clip. It was just this Alice in Wonderland moment where we got these documents. We didn't want anybody to see this stuff. So we had them set up um, a room, and only the three of us have access to the room. We were incredibly fortunate to find sources who were able to give us access to over 200 different tax returns. There are tax returns of Trump companies, Trump partnerships, Trump trusts. Fred Trump's estate tax return is in the building right now. It's incredible that we have it, and that opened a door to understanding a huge transfer of wealth that happened and gave us so much more information to be able to understand the tax games that were played. And then once you sort of pull the string, the whole thing came out. We're going to take you inside that room. Very few people have been inside that room, and we're going to take you inside that room. Um, Sue and I have, have mapped out uh, uh, a series of questions, and then we'll make sure there's plenty of time at the end for you to ask your questions. What we're going to start off with is um, we're going to give you some background on Sue's career and how that story started. Then we're going to take you inside that room and inside the story, um, something that few people have ever seen or heard. And then we'll move on to what the big reveals were, and she can, Sue will try to take you through some of the really complicated issues and some of the unanswered questions that President Trump has not addressed. And finally, we'll end up talking about the impact and some follow-up, especially in light of uh, today's election. All right? So we'll get started right away. Thank you, Sue, for coming back to Toronto. Um, you got your start as an intern, as we mentioned, in the Calgary Herald, and I think most people, you know, don't 
know that, but also don't imagine that somebody who starts off as, as an intern uh, lands up being an investigative reporter for the New York Times covering uh, the biggest story of, of, of the year, uh, President Trump. How did you do that? What was the path that landed you at the New York Times? Test, test, test. There we go. Okay. All right. It always works with test, test, test. So that's good. Okay. You just clip it on so you don't have to hold it. That's okay. I can just do it like that. You want TV? Oh, okay. <laughs> Says the CDC guy. There we go. Okay. Okay. So I was going to say, I, I asked myself that. Uh, now I have to, like, put it back on, right? You can tell I didn't grow up on that's the CDC. Right, that's right. This is why they should never have let me out of the room. Um, is that okay? okay. No, see? See, okay, see, okay. all right. Hold it. Is that better? Right. There you go. All right. I'm going to play for the crowd, not for the TV. Is that better? No. No. Okay. Oh, man. Let's see. Is that better? All right. Okay, all right, okay. Now we're rolling. All right. I'm just glad I didn't go into a, you know, career in TV at this point. So, uh, um, it's a good question. I, I sort of still wonder about it every day. I mean, it's been, it's been an incredible journey, and I think I just I started out with a simple thing that I really I as soon as I I started at the University of Calgary and I majored in political science and I just I really I started out at the University paper and, and I just found really early on that I really loved journalism. It was something that was in my blood. I just love chasing stories. And I just sort of continued that. I remember when I was um, covering Wall Street at the Journal, I talked to this trader on Wall Street. And he, he was this really successful trader. And he had this really obscure corner of Wall Street that he traded. And I said, what's your secret to success? And he said, I know what I do well. And I just keep doing it. And I sort of feel like I just keep doing reporting and it's worked out for me and I I think the other thing that's been really successful for me is I decided to go into business reporting and that's really served me well um, in my career in terms of being able to, to advance I, mean, I love what I do every morning I wake up with a childlike love of it and I think business reporting has really sort of helped me move from both I mean I was at the Globe and Mail and I got on at the Wall Street Journal and that helped me move to the Times and it's led ultimately to me covering the president in the investigations unit. So I mean, I think the combination of the two and sort of specializing in there was a big deal. Now, when you're at the New York Times, you start off um, uh, covering uh, City Hall, and you do, and, and you also do a tremendous amount of real estate and business reporting. Yeah. Can you talk about um, you? You do some fairly extensive reporting on Trump, and um, the word you get when most people are expecting he's not going to win the presidency and what what your career plan was at the New York Times and how that quickly turned around. 
So I had been, um, I covered Wall Street for a number of years, both at the Times and then at the, um, at the Journal. And I got a, I, I switched and I was covering the governor. And then I got moved to City Hall and I had been there two weeks and I got a call from the Metro editor of the New York Times and he said, we'd like you to come back from City Hall for two weeks. You've got a pretty specific, you know, coverage area where you know New York and you know business. And we'd like you to do a story on Donald Trump's business interests in New York. It's going to take two months. We don't, nobody expected him to make it beyond two months or two or three months. He says, you'll be back at City Hall. This was in January. He called me out. You'll be back at City Hall by March 1st. I never went back. Says, Donald Trump kept winning. And I sort of became the Donald Trump like investigative reporter almost by accident. The, the New York Times had dozens of reporters assigned to the candidates. And Donald Trump sort of came out of nowhere. And I ended up covering him throughout 2016 and into the presidency and up until today. I never went back to City Hall. And they've never filled the New York Times the bureau chief's job down at City Hall. It's incredible that... That, you know, it's sort of like I was expecting to go back by March 1st and I've never been back. After the election, suddenly your expertise on Trump uh, becomes vital to the New York Times. Tell us about that day you get that brown uh, uh, envelope that every journalist dreams about in your mailbox at the New York Times. Yeah, that was one of the most magical days of my life. So, <laughs> so I'm running around doing a story on, uh, on that day. It was on Goldman Sachs and Hillary Clinton. It was the only story I wrote on Hillary Clinton that year. And we're closing the story. It was a Friday afternoon. There was so much going on in the newsroom. It was weeks before election day. And I just swung by my mailbox on the way from one place to another. And there's an envelope in my mailbox. And I open it. It's, I look at it, and it's from the Trump Tower. And I didn't know what it was. Was it complain about something or whatever it was? Turn, I mean, it turns out it wasn't even like it was a false address. But I open it, and there were three pages of Donald Trump's 1995 tax returns in. And I just stood there staring at it. And it's one of these things where you you have a gut feeling that it's true, and you also know there's probably no way that you're going to be able to prove it. It could also be a complete hoax. But you're just staring at it, just going, what do I even do with this? And that launched a 10-day odyssey in which we ended up confirming that the tax returns, the 1995 tax returns that, um, that, we, that I got that day, we confirmed that they were true and brought them to publication. And they showed that Donald Trump that year had almost a billion-dollar loss. And that was significant because it, essentially that billion-dollar loss was like a gift card from the IRS that would allow him to shelter a billion dollars in taxable income going forward. It was our belief on that day that he probably never paid income tax again up until the election. It was that significant. Like, that's just so much money. A lot of it was done on other people's money. It was bank losses. But it was just... A, and, and the other thing was just to set the stage for that day. You know, Donald Trump is the only president in modern history that has not released his tax returns. And all of us were chasing that. We had spent months um, at the time looking for his tax returns, as had every other publication. But to be mailed, it was such a great New York moment. And to be able to confirm it in 10 days, which is it was a great story. And, you know, great I, I know you walk over to David Bearstow and others with, with, that, with those pieces of paper. How does that scoop eventually lead to this massive investigation? What's interesting, so we, we ran that story, and then you know we sort of go on, and we do some other stories, and Donald Trump gets elected president. And then in March 2017, um, you know, five or, five or six in the afternoon one day, 
Rachel Maddow, who is on MSNBC, tweets out that she has got more pages of tax returns from another year. So everybody tunes in at 9 o'clock that night, and it turns out she's got several pages of his 2005 tax returns. And it, it was interesting. As a, as a journalist, you sort of, you know, we wish we would have had that. We were like, we were all glued to the TV, but it was actually in some ways an unremarkable moment. But the tax returns showed some things, and but what they showed was that that year he made $130 million. It became a story that went, came and went in a day. The next day we came in and we were like, how does he go from a billion dollar loss to making $130 million? Or 100, it was $150 million. And that question, that single question, launched us on the odyssey that led to the story that was published a few weeks ago. We just we were trying to figure out how he could have made so much money in the ensuing years that he, you know, was a, that he actually had to declare income in 2005 from the billion dollar loss that he went to and what happened. And we started at that point to question what are the origins of this wealth. We didn't know where that trail was going to lead us, but that single question started this odyssey that resulted in the publication of that story you know, a couple weeks ago. So it's a classic journalistic follow the money yeah. from your yeah. the scoop you get from the tax returns that show nothing to, to the huge amount of money. Um, you're trying to solve this mystery. How do you and David and, and, and Ross, if you can, and we're moving into the second big thing, which is taking you inside the story, how do you develop the sources? How do you do the shoe level work to get the tons of documents that you will eventually publish? We, and we started Power off. I, you know, we, we started out on a very, and we spent months with public documents. What we first wanted to do is we realized really quickly that in 2004, um, there was a very big financial event in Donald Trump's life that had received almost no attention. It had got a story in the New York Post. There was one story um, about the sale of Fred Trump's real estate empire. And Fred Trump is his father. And in 1999, he had died. And in 2003, um, Donald Trump and his siblings decided to sell the empire. It was sold in 2004 very quietly. It was just remarkable how little publicity it received. And the one story that we have on it, Donald Trump actually had no comment. That may be the first time in his life. And we started with that. And we, and in New York, um, property rec records are public. And we started to, we first of all just said, what did, we, we started out with the simple question of what did Fred Trump own? And then we went through public records. Um, there's a system in New York called Acris. Um, one of my colleagues said he wished he just bought a dog around the time. He said, I wish I would have named my dog Acris because it was like we just loved the system and we spent three or four months in it trying to just figure out what Fred Trump owned and what it sold for. Nobody had done this work. There was an estimate in the post about what it had sold for, but we didn't know. We figured it out by, by looking at, you can tell by some, what something sells for in New York by the transfer tax it's paid. And we went through every building every block and lot and we started to create every building we just did almost like it was a personality and we started to create a personality profile of every building through these public records and what started to emerge from these things was not only the names of people that were involved and that traveled through fred trump's world but we also started to see for example you know in the case of beach haven this massive complex out in brooklyn that fred trump owned that um he owned, he owned the bricks and mortar at Beach Haven. 
but he had placed the land under Beach Haven in a trust for his children. When Donald Trump was three years old, a trust was set up for him and his and his siblings, and Fred Trump started paying them rent. He was the, you know, he placed the land in a trust and he started paying them rent because he owned the bricks and mortar. And we started to see all these different um, revenue streams that Fred Trump had set up. You know, he, for a while he would pay bank. He hated debt, unlike his unlike his son. And he, he started to, he would be paying mortgages for a long time to banks and eventually he would transfer the mortgages to his children and he would start paying them the payments instead of the banks. And they, the trusts that his children were able to afford these mortgages because he had seeded them with money. And we started to see all of these things through public documents through the New York property system. So how, what percentage of the documents that were the basis of the story were public? Did you just find documents that were out there for the looking and no one had well, looked for them? I think initially and we spent probably four or five months looking through public documents huh. that were able to lay the foundation for us to begin to find the documents that, you know, the, the 200 tax returns and the tens of thousands of confidential documents. But we began to understand who was you know, who were signing the documents in Fred Trump's world, who his advisors were, who the, the companies were that, that were set up for the children. And so we, we, we reached a point where we started and we were, you know, going out to people that we thought, you know, we could hopefully crack this world. And these are, you know, for the most part, I mean, always we were the 10th or 20th or 30th or 100th journalist at the door, but because we understood their language, Eventually, we got through the door where other people hadn't. Yeah, can you talk a bit more about that? Because I think it's important for the audience to understand that a lot of those documents, a lot of some of the great journalism that Sue and her team did were, were, were not through amazing confidential sources and, and leaks and, secret, you know, like the first tax return. The New York Times just did what every good journalist organization should do, is just start digging and scraping through the, uh, the, the, the public databases. But then you knock on doors... <laughs> you knock on doors um, and you get in when others don't get in. Um, what was the success? Um, why were you able to do that when other people had been turned away by these very key sources inside the Trump empire? I think that was a really good lesson to us. And, and I remember when we were talking about having to divide up the source list and, and it was just so daunting because every name on it was somebody that you knew had been approached so many times and how were we going to be successful and we thought you know we, we'd spend a lot of time preparing our approach and part of it was this language that we spoke and the documents that we were able to bring to the door to say you know not just do we want to speak to you but here's what we want to talk to you about and we know about this and we know about a company called Midland and we know about a company called El County and we never you know I don't think any of us got a the first time we went to the door we got in but we kept going back and we tried, I mean, you try not to be, try not to bother people in a way where you annoy them, but rather to convince them that you know what you're doing. And it was a long process of a dance between a lot of sources that led us to these confidential documents. And finally, we got the trust of a few people who said, okay. 
and we got those in-house. But if we hadn't have spent that many months traveling through the public documents, we never would have done it. So you have a mountain of documents. You're developing these important sources. Uh, you know, historically, when the New York Times uh, breaks the Pentagon uh, paper story, they set up a secret room in, in one of the local hotels. As we saw in that video, um, the New York Times decides to set up this secret bat cave where you and David and, and, and take us inside that room. Why did they set up that room? Who had access to that room and what for goodness sake was everybody else in the newsroom thinking when you would disappear every morning into that secret cave yeah it was interesting we had uh, there's three of us who had access to the room three reporters who worked on it my colleagues um, Russ and David and two keys so we were always swapping off keys and we just we were we just didn't want anybody to know we had to be in a room together because and, and I'll talk about this but we had to start piecing together what we had when you get all these documents in a room, you don't know what's going to emerge from them, and you have to start uncoding them. And it became like every day a puzzle that we had to kind of sort out and talk about. And it was really awkward because we were on another floor from the newsroom. We were from the main newsroom, but we were, we were outside uh, the arts and travel section. And everybody was nice enough not to ask, but everybody was sort of wondering what we were up to. And at a certain point, you just sort of lose a lot of friends because you can't talk about what you're doing, and everybody kind of wants to know. But we're nice enough not to ask, but it became, a, yeah, it became an interesting. And we were in there for almost a year. Um, and the only unfortunate thing I have to say is when we started this project, months before we got the documents, we had named it, and there's a, and just in the, you know, I think all newspapers do this, you name, a, you name a project, and they had named it Trump Taxes. So I actually think there was an expectation in the building that we had Donald Trump's taxes. And I was getting calls from, from friends at other publications who thought we actually had Donald Trump's taxes. It turns out we actually had a lot of his tax information. We didn't have his taxes. But next time I do a project, I'm going to name it something else, like really boring so that... Don't get all the Yeah, yeah, I'd like to lower expectations on it. it was I know certainly a, for, funny, the, uh, for the journalists that are in the room and to some degree for members of the public, it is extremely rare, even for a newspaper like the New York Times, to, to give three journalists uh, a year, 18 months to, to work on a project. How did that come about? And was there pressure? Was there people in, in, in management saying, what's happening? When are you going to deliver? I think the first key of getting 18 months to do a project is not telling your bosses <laughs> that you're going to take 18 months. But we, we didn't know how long the journey was going to take. And I think that that, you know, it, 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 there was a lot of pressure along the way. But I think ultimately the Times, you know, I think respected that just given the complexity of what we were dealing with and the topic matter that it was going to take time to get through. There was, but there was a lot of push and pull along the way in terms of like our timeline. And but Jenna, you had the strong support from your investigative editors and from yeah, they, they were willing yeah. to let you take the time until you knew you were going to. Yeah, I think story. once they once they realized what we had in house and sort of where we were heading with it. 100%. Yeah. You, when you started off with David and Ron, you didn't think it would take that long either, did you? No, I mean, when we saw each other in right. April, yeah. I mean, it was April or May of 2017, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we thought, thought we were going to be published by the end of the year yeah. or sooner. And when we, when, we, when we met, we didn't have the documents at that point. We still thought, even given the public documents that we had, that we had a great story, but we didn't have the what ended up to be the hundreds of tax returns and thousands of financial documents that we got. Now, a key issue uh, for members of the public to understand that journalists have to deal with is you're gathering information, as you saw uh, uh, Sue and her team get massive amount of documents, have a lot of sources. Um, you're beginning to put together a thesis and some uh, uh, 
some important points. At some point, you have to decide when do you approach the subjects of your investigation, in this case, the president of the United States, and give him or his team a chance to respond or, uh, or, or react to that. Um, let me start first by, can you talk a bit about prior to uh, Donald Trump becoming president, when you were covering him and his family, I think people would be surprised how often Ivanka and the, the other Trumps, including Donald Trump, would be calling you at the, new, at the failing New York Times. So can you talk about what it was like initially when you were covering him yeah, and I, how that changed? It's interesting because I covered him in, uh, you know, starting in early 2016 prior to him getting the nomination. And Sometimes the calls were like comically relentless. Like I would be covering, I did a story on, um, it was interesting, on his airplanes. And it was a random, it was in April of 2016. And I was looking at sort of how old the airplanes were. They became a huge backdrop to sort of him advertising his wealth. Well, in fact, a lot of them were 20, 30, 40 years old. And I eventually went to him to talk to him for comment, and I couldn't get him off the phone. He called me, like, consecutively between rallies, and um, and this also, you know, other stories. He was very engaged in what I was writing, because it had to do with either his airplanes or his business. And it was almost like, okay, I've, like, I've got enough, and I don't have any more questions. And <laughs> you're just like, okay, like, you know, in Ivanka Trump, I would be... I did another story where she was calling me and it was like, I'd get four calls before I got to work at nine in the morning and she's my best friend and like, you know, girl talk. And it was kind of, it was just crazy. And then that separating now is a completely different world now, but when in the run up, I mean, they're very savvy at dealing with the media and, you know, I'm aware of that when you're taking their calls, but you also, it's interesting. You just, when you compare that to Hillary Clinton, who gave almost no access, no access. You always want access to the subject, but things really flipped coming into this story. And it's interesting just how um, our concern going into the story, and we, tr we treated this story really differently, and we thought a lot about how to approach them because we had seen in the run-up to our story, and we had a lot of time to see how they were dealing with investigative product uh, projects at the Times, and often they would tweet out information um, if we go to them, you're worried that they're going to leak it. Um, but at the core, the core of what we're doing, we also believe that they deserve fair comment. And you have to kind of balance the two. And this was a very different when we finally went to comment, um, for, you know, on our project, which we had spent more than a year on. We can't just give them one day to comment, but we also have to be prepared that they're going to tweet it out and that we're ready to go to publication. And so we got the story that we were pretty much ready to go. Um, and then went to them for comment in different stages. And we have to go to not only, in this case, Donald Trump, but all of his siblings. Um, but you, we had to be, and normally you would just engage people earlier in the process, but we, you know, we were navigating, will he tweet it out? Will he say something? Will they hold a press conference or do something to undercut the story? And it became a real balancing act in the end. Ultimately, we gave them almost a month, um, and they came back with us, um, to us you know, with the threat to sue and that it was defamatory and that they would pursue litigation, which they haven't. Um, but they never engaged us on a serious level, and nor did any of the family members. Let's end the inside uh, story aspect with just digging a bit more into that delicate balance, because Donald Trump Jr. had previously on a story... That's you, the one that you, really comes to right, mind. You, you yeah. had gone to 
to Donald Trump Jr. for, as we have to as journalists, for reaction. And he tried to scoop the New York Times by tweeting it out. And, he did. And getting yeah, his he got ahead out. of it. Yeah. He got, got ahead of it. So yeah. on this story, you gave them a month. Um, so President Trump knew the guts of your story a month before you went he to did. We started to talk to them a month before. Wow. And part of it wasn't, I'm not sure, you know, a lot of things happened. We planned to run it one weekend and the hurricane happened. So there was a lot of things that gave them more time. But we were adamant and engaged in them at every step and sent letters saying, here's what we're doing. And we tried to engage them on a substantive level with the advisors that we knew knew about the information that we were going to publish. Ultimately, the the lawyer that they hired to handle a lot of um, sort of high-risk media situations for them and that was hired, um, Peter Thiel, represented Peter, Peter Thiel in the Hulk Hogan case um, with Gawker, was the lawyer that called us back. He's a lawyer that does not know and did not know any of the substantive facts of what we were talking about. He's a lawyer that threatens to, to sue reporters, was the lawyer that ultimately engaged us and hasn't hasn't sued us. People probably know yeah. the famous Bob Woodward tape when just before his book comes out, he, he records his conversation with the president and the president kind of says, oh, I didn't know you were yeah. trying to uh, talk to me. I would have loved to talk to you. In your case, you can document and the we, and we got a And we got a comment from the president, which was, I got a million dollar loan from my father and I turned it into a billion dollar empire, which was exactly the narrative of the story, which was interesting that that's what they came back with. And we can talk a bit more about that's the right. findings in the story, but that's right. It fed well, right into the narrative. Let's turn yeah. to that. I, I hope you've got a good sense now, as few people have, about the amazing internal behind the scenes that Batcave um, operation that Sue and her two colleagues um, worked at. After a year, a year and a half of work, approaching the president, giving the president and the rest of the Trump family a month to respond, the story comes out. Um, and um, we're going to move on to what are some of the big reveals. Just before that, we're going to play um, a little um, social media video uh, that the New York Times put together. Um, it's being played off of Twitter, so there will be possibly a bit of buffering uh, before uh, you get to see it. But take a look at this, and this will help us set up uh, Sue's explanation of what were some of the big reveals that you have to understand about where Trump got his money from. He 
was from Brooklyn and Queens, where we did, mm-hmm. you know, smaller things. And by the way, when my father passed away, remember, I have four, I have a total of five in my family, so we have brothers, sisters, split. I have all these people writing books about, I got this, I got that, I got peanuts. Uh, and when my father died, <laughs> I had already built a great fortune. Love that one. And my father didn't leave a great fortune. It was Brooklyn and Queens real estate, and it wasn't a great fortune. But now what they do is they, they build it up like, oh, he left Donald money. And my father never gave any money. When my father passed away, he gave some, but by the time he passed away, I had already built my business. I built this empire, and I did it by myself. Nobody did it for me. Maybe not. <laughs> so let's look at, at, at that because arguably um, Trump's uh, election um, and his success was the, the story that I did it all by myself. I've run, I've, I just borrowed a million dollars and paid it back with interest. And if I can become a billionaire, look what I can do to the country. Yeah, and so- this was at the core of sort of our pursuit was that, that his, his persona was at the core. Like, that's how we you know, campaigned and got into the White House, that he was a billionaire. And, you know, I don't, I don't ascribe to that. I don't know if he is or not, because he's never released enough financial information for us to gauge that. But he presented this gilded life and that he was sort of this kind of almost up from nothing guy who got into the White House. And I think we all kind of a wink and a nod knew that wasn't true. Um, but we, what our story ultimately did was really kind of put the nail in that coffin that that was just give me a break. I mean, that was just the farthest thing from the truth. So let's try to break it down uh, to the audience. I hope most of you took the time to read um, over a long, long weekend. Uh, the, the, um, <laughs> All 14,000 words. 14,000 yeah. words. And there's some great so- other social media video that you can watch on the New York Times site, some of them narrated yeah. by Sue, that will take you through what the big reveals are. But we're tonight, over the next uh, 15 or 20 minutes, are going to take you through with the leading expert what were some of the big things you need to know about how Donald Trump really got his riches? So let's start with the, the most famous one where he yeah. said, I just got a million dollars from my dad, that's all. Um, uh-huh. what, what in the end was the total number you were able to, uh, to piece together about what he really got from So he did dad. get a million dollar loan from his father and he got a million dollar loans many times over. He got 60 some million dollar loans. It was 60, at least $60 million in loans. And that's in real, real dollars um, over that we could at least track. And I'm sure it was more than that. And then he got more than $400 million over his lifetime, starting at least when he was three, up until today where he's still profiting off of his father's empire through the sale of uh, it's a housing complex. It's the largest federally subsidized housing complex in the United States called Starrett City. His father had an interest in it. And to this day, there'll be checks coming to Donald Trump in the White House from that investment. And it, it was a huge amount of 400 plus million dollars and $60 million in loans, many of which were forgiven or had, you know, the interest was never paid or And we'll get into some of the other tricks that they use. So we're talking about over $460 million total that that he gets. Um, What's Donald Trump's wealth when he's three years old? By then, he's pretty much a He's set. He's almost a millionaire at that level, just at three years old. He gets at that that in that year, three years old, he's getting the equivalent of a doctor's salary just from the lease payments underneath the the building complex that I mentioned. in Brooklyn Beach Haven, 
just in the lease payments that his father's paying. And uh, by the time he's nine or ten, right. you know, Again, he keeps people, going. Yeah. And I think there's a figure. What what what's his worth at eight, eight, nine, or ten? I several think million dollars. Several yeah, million yeah, dollars yeah, worth. Yeah. yeah. Then it becomes the this becomes the the foundational the foundational lie. What's interesting I found is that in your reporting and in some of the interviews you've done 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 since, in the 1980s and the 1990s, the media was largely uncritical yeah. of this real estate tycoon. He appears on Dick Cavett, and interestingly, the New York Times, your own newspaper, yeah. can you talk about the article that the New York Times does, which in many ways becomes the the root of that myth? What's interesting about the story that we did to me is the the idea that that he was worth all this, and we we started to call it the foundational lie. It's like the first lie that's committed. And when we started to trace back, sort of where this started, um, I don't know if the New York Times did the first story, but the first significant story that was done on Donald Trump um, that we could find was in the New York Times in 1976, and it was incredible. This is a Donald Trump at this point. He's in his mid 20s. He just graduated from war, and he's working for his father. He has, he owns nothing other than he's working for his father, and he takes the reporter around. He's showing this New York Times reporter around New York, and he's showing him this building and that building. He's like, this is my building, and this is my job, and he's taking them around in a Cadillac that's, you know, his father's leasing it, and it was one building after the other, and all of it was his father's wealth, and he was claiming all of it as his own. He claimed his his net worth to that reporter, which was attributed in that story as more than $200 million. Um, his tax return that year showed he made about $26,000. Um, it was a spectacular con, and it was written in our style section. And that story became really significant. It was interesting, when we were in the room, we would play over and over all the interviews that he gave from the 1970s to the mid-1980s. And this stuff was repeated over and over and over. And he became sort of this celebrity in New York. Some people took him seriously, some people didn't. But nobody really questioned the origins of the wealth. People knew that Fred had a lot. They didn't really know what he was worth. And he was hard to resist. And people fought the story. There was this good-looking guy. He was on the scene in New York. He was doing a lot of stuff at this point with real estate in New York. His father was backing it, which we show in the story. That wasn't necessarily reported. There was some good reporting along the way, but a lot of it wasn't, and a lot of it was celebrity-driven. And this began the foundational lie of Donald Trump that we're now still trying to unwind to this day. And it's interesting that the media, including the New York Times, is in many ways responsible for that initial foundational lie because people were so uncritical. You start doing the criticism. You're able to document that it's not one million, but closer to 60 million in loans and 400 million plus in in benefits. Um, But then you dig deeper. It's not just because many people, not many people, but people can have wealthy fathers who give them money and good for them. You begin to investigate that it wasn't just wealth that was passed on, but there were tax dodges um, and possibly some illegal stuff that was going on inside that empire. So talk about all county and and how important that is to understanding Trump's wealth today. So we found along the way there was a lot of um, wealth that was passed along. We mentioned like the, 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 the payments, you know, he made them as landlord, he made them as banker. There was a lot of stuff that was done that was completely legal. There was dozens of revenue streams that we found that were um, 
generationally how people pass wealth from one generation to the other. And then it was we started to get into the tax returns and the confidential documents that we found. Um, we started to realize this was going way over the line in terms of, you know, not just tax avoidance, but tax evasion and tax fraud. And the main, um, the main uh, fraud that we found was a company called All County Building Supply. It has a great name because it's so innocuous. Um, but in the, and it was incorporated in 1992, and this was a point in, um, in Fred Trump's life. Fred Trump is getting older. And it's interesting because he owned buildings that were worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And he also, he didn't believe, and he had very little debt. It was, it was incredible to see when we got into his documents. But he also was sitting on huge amounts of cash at a corporate level. All the buildings he owned just had so much cash sitting on them. And in 1992, just, you know, actuarially, he's at some point getting closer to death. And at the time, the children, if they were have to, if he were to die tomorrow, would have been facing a 55% estate tax on the money um, that he was sitting on. And so they came up with this. Hey there, welcome back to the Christopher Gabinetti Show. How Trump got rich, the real story. CJF video. Trump's entities. To we'll back up a little bit. Tax return that year showed it's underneath the, the building complex that I mentioned um, in Brooklyn, Beach Haven, just in the lease payments that his father's paying. And uh, by the time he's nine or ten, right. you know, Again, he just keeps people. going. Yeah. And I think there's a figure. What what what's his worth at eight, eight, nine, or ten? I Several million the, dollars. Several yeah, million yeah, dollars yeah, worth. Yeah, yeah. Then it becomes the this becomes the the foundational. Lo- the foundational lie. What's interesting I found is that in your reporting and in some of the interviews you've done 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 since, in the 1980s and the 1990s, the media was largely uncritical yeah. of this real estate tycoon. He appears on Dick Cavett. And interestingly, the New York Times, your own newspaper, yeah. can you talk about the article that the New York Times does, which in many ways becomes the, the root of that myth? What, what's interesting about the story that we did to me is the, the idea that that he was worth all this and we, we started to call it the foundational lie it's like the first lie that's committed and when we started to trace back sort of where this started um, I don't know if the New York Times did the first story but the first significant story that was done on Donald Trump um, that we could find was in the New York Times in 1976 and it was incredible this is a Donald Trump at this point Suzanne Craig just graduated from war and he's working for his father. He has, he owns nothing other than he's working for his father and he takes the reporter around, he's showing this New York Times reporter around New York and he's showing him this building and that building. He's like, this is my building and this is my job. And he's taking them around in a Cadillac that's, you know, his father's leasing it. It was one building after the other and all of it was his father's wealth, and he was claiming all of it as his own. He claimed his, his net worth to that reporter, which was attributed in that story, is more than $200 million. Um, his tax return that year showed he made about $26,000. Um, it was a spectacular con, and it was written in our style section. And that story became really significant. It was interesting. When we were in the room, we would play over and over all the interviews that he gave from the 1970s to the mid-1980s. And this stuff was repeated over and over and over. And he became sort of the celebrity in New York. Some people took him seriously, some people didn't. But nobody really questioned the origins of the wealth. People knew that Fred 
had a lot. They didn't really know what he was worth. And he was hard to resist. And people bought the story. There was this good-looking guy. He was on the scene in New York. He was doing a lot of stuff at this point with real estate in New York. His father was backing it, which we show in the story. That wasn't necessarily reported. There was some good reporting along the way, but a lot of it wasn't, and a lot of it was celebrity-driven. And this began the foundational lie of Donald Trump that we're now still trying to unwind to this day. And it's interesting that the media, including the New York Times, is in many ways responsible for that initial foundational lie because people were so uncritical. You start doing the criticism. You're able to document that it's not one million, but closer to 60 million in loans and 400 million plus in 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 benefits. Um, But then you dig deeper. It's not just because many people, not many people, but people can have wealthy fathers who give them money and good for them. You begin to investigate that it wasn't just wealth that was passed on, but there were tax dodges um, and possibly some illegal stuff that was going on inside that empire. So talk about all county and and how important that is to understanding Trump's wealth today. So we found along the way, there was a lot of um, wealth that was passed along. We mentioned like the, 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 the payments, you know, he made them as landlord, he made them as banker. There was a lot of stuff that was done that was completely legal. There was dozens of revenue streams that we found that were um, generationally how people pass wealth from one generation to the other. And then it was we started to get into the tax returns and the confidential documents that we found. Um, we started to realize this was going way over the line in terms of, you know, not just tax avoidance, but tax evasion and tax fraud. And the main, um, the main uh, fraud that we found was a company called All County Building Supply. It has a great name because it's so innocuous. Um, but in the and it was incorporated in, in 1992, and this was a point in um, in Fred Trump's life. Fred Trump is getting older, and it's interesting because he owned buildings that were worth hundreds of millions of dollars, and he also he didn't believe and he had very little debt. It was it was incredible to see when we got into his documents, but. He also was sitting on huge amounts of cash at a corporate level. All the buildings he owned just had so much cash sitting on them. And in 1992, just you know, actuarially, he's at some point getting closer to death. And at the time, the children, if they were have to, if he were to die tomorrow, would have been facing a 55% estate tax on the money um, that he was sitting on. And so they came up with this. This scheme, and Fred Trump was involved in, in, you know, in the discussions on setting it up. They, they set up this company, and the shareholders were Donald Trump and his siblings. And how it worked was, for years, um, Fred Trump would go out, and he owned all these buildings, and he would buy boilers, and everything from boilers to bleach to fridges and stoves, and he would pay for them. And then one day, instead of um, the buildings that he owned paying for them, all county would pay for them, and they would pay the same price or you know, within a range. But all county would then turn around and bill Fred Trump 20 to 50% more. They started to drain all the cash that Fred Trump had into all county and it changed the tax rate on it. And through all the documents we got, and these were obtained not just through the confidential documents, but through, um, we first stumbled on all county on a, on a public document. It was a congressional filing we found through Donald Trump's sister, who's a federal judge, and we saw how much money she was getting from all county. That's the first thing that flagged us to like, what the heck's all county? And then we started doing, um, fortunately in New York, we can see um, 
through public documents, we, we started to understand because all county, the insidious side of all county was not only were they draining all this money from Fred Trump's estate just to lower their tax rate, they all of the number of Fred Trump's buildings were, were rent regulated. And in order to um, increase the rent in these buildings, they had to apply to the state to do it. And they started submitting these padded bogus receipts to justify the rent increases. And they were getting higher than what should have been rent increases. And through FOIA requests, we were able to pull these documents in and see they, they had submitted these bogus receipts to basically jam their tenants with higher than what should have been rent increases. So through freedom of information requests, we were able to get a lot of these documents. It was in a, when, once we sort of saw what was going on and there was millions of dollars that were being drawn down from Fred Trump's entities to the kids to lower the tax rate. Ultimately, Fred Trump in 1999, when he died, he was a guy who, he had so much money. We couldn't believe between 1998 and 1993, he drew out more than $100 million in like real money for five years from his, um, you know, on his tax returns, he died with less than $2 million in his bank account. Because wow. these kids had just drained his empire. Like, it just was, like, unbelievable to see how much money we saw. And this doesn't even include the personal bank accounts that had tens of millions of dollars that we saw going through it hmm. monthly. So just for non you, you spent many years covering Wall Street, and I, I have enough time balancing my, my bank account. But just to be clear, you've got a very rich dad who, when he dies, um, if his money stays under his name, Donald and the rest of his siblings will get a huge hit. And there's all kinds of ways yeah. you can do it legally. But what they do is they create basically this sham company, yeah. and money is siphoned away from the future tax man. Yeah. The sham this company, company. All, all it did was just produce receipts that went up to Fred to drain them. Yeah, bogus then, receipts then, that were And all the kids, Donald included, <laughs> yeah. then get those millions without having to uh, pay pay the. Uh, they may have paid some tax. tax. We don't know, but they definitely didn't pay fifty five percent taxes. Tax. That they yeah. Had to do. yeah, they 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 defrauded the U.S. Treasury. So Donald, thanks to both his his rich dad and also some um, uh, rather creative uh, tax dodges, um, is sitting on millions and millions and millions. But as his dad is dying, uh, Donald um, is a little worried. Tell us um, what Donald does uh, to try to get even more money from his uh, his um, elderly dad. Yeah, this is one of the most incredible moments in the story for me, and just in terms because the story, you know. A lot of it's about tax fraud and how he got his wealth, but it ultimately is the story of a relationship between a father and a son and just this incredible, I think the dynamic between the two of them over decades and how Fred Trump at every turn had Donald Trump's back covered. He gave him hundreds of millions of dollars, he co-signed loans, he forgave loans. And then in 1990, there's the famous casino story. Yeah, he, he had, the, the 1990, and the, when Donald Trump was in huge trouble and couldn't make the 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 payments on the debt at one of his casinos, one of Fred Trump's bankers walks into to one of his casinos and buys 3.5 million dollars in casino chips and just walks out without placing a bet. He made the bond payment for him, and it was incredible. You know, this story's been out there, and you know, he, they paid a fine. But to see the checks written, like we had the checks in house, we were when we were we spent month or we spent weeks scanning all these documents, and just to see the check to the Trump castle going through, we were like, wow. So you see the distress that Donald Trump is in in 1990, and Dad is always there for him. And it's that was like the the darkest moments of Donald Trump's financial life, where it was it was in 1990. 
and you can see it and and we you know you can see Fred Trump who never he, he tried to avoid taking out, you know, you could see for years on his tax returns, very little money he, he took out. And in those five years, in the, the, you know, in the greatest moment of his son's distress, took out more than $100 million. And in, 19, and in December 1990, um, there's this moment in the story, and it just is a, an incredible scene between these two men and a, of a father who has at every turn supported his son. Donald Trump has a lawyer in-house. Um, one of his lawyers draft a codicil to his father's will to change his father's will, which would have given... Um, he, he, has the, he has lawyers show up at his father's house, and Fred Trump reads the codicil that his son has drafted to the will. He's given no notice that this is coming over, and, he, and Fred Trump immediately sees it as an attempt by Donald Trump to gain full control of his own empire, of, of his, you know, Fred Trump's empire, and Fred just flipped out. He refused to sign the codicil, and he immediately changed the executors on his will. At that point, Donald was his only executor, and he put Donald Trump and his um, Marianne Trump, Donald's sister, and Robert Trump, the other sibling, as the co-executors, and ultimately drafted another will. He, he saw what was going on immediately. It's just incredible that a son could send over a codicil and try and have his father's will change. At this point, Fred Trump is getting on in age, and at least he had the wherewithal to see what was going on and put the brakes on it. But it's just an incredible thing that after all of that, that somebody could do that. Let's wrap this section on the on the on the big reveals because I think you've taken the audience through some of the big chunks and shocking revelations. Is that on the front page of the New York Times, uh, you are in effect accusing the president of outright fraud? Um, we did. Yeah. Um, how do you, how do you how you know how comfortable were you with that and 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 um, how strong did you feel you had the evidence to be able to make such a damning accusation? I think it became, it was an evolution for us, but I think ultimately we felt really comfortable over it. When you see things like all county, and we haven't even talked about all the games that were played um, with the appraisals, and you know this is Fred, Fred Trump was a man who was one of the the greatest post-war builders in the United States. He owned hundred millions of dollars in real estate. And to see how they, um, you know, through various, either, you know, in the will or through other things that went on, took real estate that was worth, when it served them, told the IRS it was worth nothing, or real estate that wasn't worth a lot and when they needed it for charitable deductions, told them it was worth tens of millions of dollars, um, you know, from the all-county um, scam that we told you about. There was so many things that we saw. We felt ultimately very comfortable. I mean, there were, certainly were discussions at the New York Times about the allegation that we were levying on. Um, but we felt... You felt comfortable? Yeah, we felt very comfortable about it. In the final 10 minutes we have, before we can open it up to the, uh, to the audience, let's talk about the impact of the story and also what's coming forward, especially yeah. in light of, uh, of Tuesday's, uh, Tuesday's election. Um... It struck me, you know, when when there's um, uh, when it's revealed that Hillary deletes some emails, uh, the Republicans and Fox and the other media pounce, and to this day you're still hearing about crooked Hillary and the email servers. Um, you expose massive fraud, illegality, um, and yet few politicians or the media seem to be talking about it 
during either the elections or, or even now. I'm wondering if that frustrates you. You know, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm frustrated but not surprised. Um, it's frustrating because I, I, I think it should be, you know, front and center every day. But I think when you think about the world we live in compared to, like, I, I just remember when I was a kid, the only way we would, we would consume news in certain ways. Every day the newspaper would arrive at a certain time and we would watch the daily news and we would have time to process, like, what was being said. And it was, I sort of always remember Neil Postman, I, when I was in university, I studied him and I remember him even when USA Today was coming on opining about the sort of the decline of news and now you're not only just, you know, USA Today is just almost quaint when you think about it. in Twitter, we have to consume things in 140 characters or, you know, 280 characters. I mean, the attention span of people to consume news um, and how quickly they do it, um, and especially now with TV news, it just happens so fast that it's, you know, it had, a, it had a life cycle and then it moved on to the next thing. I mean, I think it... it it's frustrating, but I, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm it's sad, but I'm not surprised. One of the things you, you mentioned um, in talking with the Globe this week is that to some degree in journalism, we try to surprise people. Yeah. And is there an element that, you know, exposing Trump as a liar and somebody who, who played uh, loose with money um, is shocking in his revelation, but maybe not out of character. Is, well, is that a challenge? I think we were all under the joke that he got more than a million dollars from his father. But I think what, you know, what was important about our story, and I think about the investigative journalism behind it that myself and my colleagues did, was simply the the amount of evidence that we were able to to back with that. And I think that that's, it is hard, it's a challenge because you're always swimming uphill. I think, you know, whenever you cover something about Trump, it's, you know, is he a liar? Well, I think with a lot of people that would be a shock. Did he misrepresent something? You know, you can go on and on and on and people aren't surprised and it is a challenge um, when you're covering him. Like, what sort of, what do you write next about him that's really going to surprise that's people? That's a real challenge. And I, I think at least with this story, I think the, at least the, the magnitude of it and the documentation we have, you know, kind of was the shock factor more than actually the revelation itself. And as you said at the beginning, Trump has not talked about it. He used, when he gets angry about yeah. something, but he has just tried to ignore it because he wants this to go away. Yeah. And in none of the statements by him or, or um, the press secretary or anybody else, has there been any rebuttal of any of the major revelations? Of, of in the, of it, yeah. in the and I, I think the important thing to talk about about the story too isn't that you know, it, it had a lifespan of it was, and there was a lot of criticism, you know, should we have, we held it because there was a hurricane one weekend and then we were writing into the Kavanaugh hearings and people were like, we should have held it for this day or that day. You know, at a certain point you have a news story that's ready to go, but I think that the story will have, you know, I think, you know, the house has changed now, it's going to have a second life as we start talking more about the taxes now that there's a possibility that those are going to be aired. And I, and I think, you know, for history, this will take a while to soak into the bloodstream, but it's going to change the narrative of how people write about the 45th president of the United States, and I think that that's also something. I think that there's just going to be waves of how people process the story. You mentioned that in light of Tuesday's elections and the, the Democrats gaining control of the House, and that there's some changes also in the New York um, uh, uh, 
legislature. Um, what could come, based on some of your revelations, what could Trump be facing in, in terms of more investigations yeah. into his finances, yeah. in part thanks to your digging? Yeah. Well, the House now, because it's now Democrat control, they can, they can request his tax returns. That could be a major event when it happens. I don't think it's going to happen without some legal wrangling, and it's probably not going to happen immediately. Um, New York State also now, the the Senate was Republican-controlled. It's now controlled by the Democrats for the first time in a long time. They've been seeking his tax returns, and there's there's bills pending that could be reintroduced. Um, That could happen. And there's also... um, Investigations going on both on the city level and the state level into some of the allegations um, that we raised. I'm optimistic about some and, and not so optimistic about others. A lot of this happened a long time ago, but in some cases the documents still exist. And I think there's an appetite on certain levels to continue to pursue it. So we're sort of feeling a bit of a mix. Interesting. Yeah. Let me end on a broader Trump question in general, not just about, about your stories. Um, You know, Trump has said that the media, like the New York Times and the Post, love him because um, his reign has kind of revitalized uh, media. He kind of says, when I'm gone, they'll they'll, they'll all be failing even more, that he's helped their their finances and and (laughs) given them a boost. Um, Aside from, you know, his political reasons for saying that, is there an element of truth in that, that the Trump presidency has given you and the New York Times and the Washington Post uh, an amazing revitalization of investigative journalism. <laughs> yeah, it has. I mean, there's no, there's no question. It's, I think, given a lot of journalists a lot of purpose. I've said it before. I think he's, he's good for journalism in the same way that war is good for the economy. I don't think you'd wish that on anybody. <laughs> I think he, he is. It's. You know, he, he's been a corrosive force. I mean, he's a, he's a person who believes that the Bill of Rights begins with the Second Amendment. And he is, you know, it's it's like, you know, the saying, and it, it's been used before, but you, it's, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. And he's he's done that in the theater he's using as America. He's, in, I believe, inciting violence and, 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 and hatred talk against journalists. And it's not a good thing for society. Free press shouldn't be something that's a partisan issue. It should be something we all support. It's great for democracy. And he has made it a partisan issue. And I don't think anybody wins on that. And as some of you, most of you probably know, he barred uh, CNN's lead correspondent uh, from the White House, yeah. which, is, which, is, which is quite shocking. Finally, in light of what, what you've been saying all night and, and your last comments, what's it like working at the failing New York Times uh, in the age of, of, of Trump? How exciting is it? And also, how crazy is it there now? You know, it's been... To be able to do that story was a great... It was just a great experience. And, like, you, as an investigative journalist, you think that something like somebody gets to the White House and... All of this stuff should have been figured out in all of his history. We had a, in the room that we were in, we had a, a, a board, it was a, a bit out of homeland, but we had on one side the headline that we wanted on the story, which was Donald Trump, the correction. Because so much of it was wrong in this history that was out there about him. And it, on the one hand, it's exhilarating to have been able to write that story, but I also feel... It's really, I feel like we're working in a domestic war zone at this point. When you walk into the New York Times every day, there's police barricades out there now. 
we go to we go to security meetings and we're concerned about which windows are now targets for sharpshooters. We have a hotel on each side. We have to work with the hotels for security. I actually sit at a window and I look out every day. You're like looking for sharpshooters. Like it is not to something that's pleasant and this has been brought on by the person who's now in the White House. I mean, it's incredible. We have to go through um, training in case there's shooters that come in on how we get out of the building. They want us to go to first aid courses so we can learn how to bandage people in case of a mass shooting at the New York Times. Um, it's a really scary time. And it, it's, it is, uh, you, you sort of, you worry about what's going to happen every day when you walk in there. So on the one, on the one hand, I think it has, it's, it's been great for journalism on one hand, but I wouldn't wish it on anybody. Yeah. On that optimistic note, uh, we're going to open it up to questions from the, um, from the floor. We're bang on time. Um, so we'll have about uh, 20 to 25 minutes. Uh, please come up and use the mic um, so we can hear your voices. Please do ask questions. Don't make statements. Um, and make them as pointed as you want. Um, and Sue will uh, take them all. Um, identify yourself if you feel like it, just so we know where you're coming from. Sir, you're first. Yeah, just a private citizen, Paul Sopak. <laughs> um, it seemed to me that the, uh, there was an interchange of the terms like fraud and creative tax, tax dodging. Yeah. I mean, in terms of legal um, matters, uh, uh, are you inferring a fraud in terms of a criminal liability? And isn't that really the purview of the American IRS to determine that? Excellent question. No, it's a good question. There was a lot of, um, in the story, and we tried to make those lines pretty clear, there was tax avoidance, tax evasion, and tax fraud. Um, the criminal liability, that I think the statutes have long told on that in terms of what we found. There's, a, there's, a, there's statutes for criminal fraud, um, and I don't think anything's going to come of that. Um, we did find, we believe, pretty outright fraud on some issues, and... Whether the IRS goes after or not, uh, you know, we haven't heard anything from them. I think that, I think two things. One is, is, you know, I've talked to people at the IRS, is that their practice to go over, you know, after fraud, after 20-some years. Um, on a civil level, they could. It's unlikely it could because it's their practice not to. Um, and now the person they're pursuing is the president. Um, but we, I think in the story, I hope we were pretty clear about the lines. Um, in terms of the different, you know, is it tax evasion, tax avoidance, tax fraud? And we saw kind of all, all stripes in the story. Yes, ma'am. As of t uh, last night, there's a new attorney general in the U.S. who has not been confirmed by the Senate. Yeah. I'm an ordinary ci citizen, but a political junkie. Um, <laughs> and happy to be a Canadian. Um, is there any thought, I mean, he can shut down Mueller if he chooses, but he's not been confirmed. Um, if the Senate sits, he will be confirmed. Um, he should excuse himself. You've got all kinds of examples of why. Um, is there any thought of working on this? In terms of the, the tax stuff? In term, in just in terms of him being Attorney General and the power he has. I don't see... I continue to think that they're going to refer, in terms of the special counsel, anything outside of it. I think Mueller's been pretty clear on that. He's referred a lot of stuff to the Southern District in New York that is not kind of at the core of what he's doing, and I think you're going to continue to see that. Um, I don't know from Mueller's office. You know, I don't know what... I mean, I, I wish I had a crystal ball to sort of see what 
what the what tomorrow is going to bring with the with the nominee that's in. Um, but I think with Mueller, you're going to continue to see it's been a pretty consistent pattern of referring stuff to the Southern District. Yeah, yeah. Just, yeah. Charlie, Charlie Savage in today's New York Times has a has a couple of excellent articles that address some of your questions, and he he takes you through why uh, the new Attorney General can actually stay in office, uh, I think, up to 210 days yeah, without uh, without actually being confirmed, being, and it can, be, it can be renewed, and yeah. what his powers are, which are yeah. quite extensive, yeah. to stop or block uh, Mueller. So, yeah. but he should he should accuse himself. Well, that was raised because yeah, yeah. the question is because of his previous yeah, statements about yeah. the investigation. Yeah, yeah. Hi there. Hello. Um, I have actually three questions rolled into one, sorry. I <laughs> was thinking you've spent almost a year working on this, and what surprised and delighted you about the result of what you did, but what disappointed you in terms of the reaction? And finally, what would you have done differently? All right, so surprise, disappoint, and what would you have done differently? And what would you change? Clearly a journalist. What surprised me? Um, Keep, throw away, and recycle, I guess is the theme. <laughs> oh, it's a hard uh, surprise, disappoint. What was the third one? And then... Um, what would you do differently? What would you do differently? Nothing surprised me, nothing disappointed me, and nothing I would do differently. Oh, I mean... Um, <clears throat> I have to say the surprise, I want to kind of focus on that. I think the feedback and people have sort of talked about how maybe it should have gotten more traction. I also think the feedback has been incredibly positive on it. And I think it's renewed my faith in investigative journalism. I think so much journalism that I see, I consume it every day. I'm there and I'm covering the president is, you know, what's happening today. It's, you know, TV driven, it's partisan driven. And I think it's renewed my faith that, you know, Sometimes let's let's actually spend some time actually following the facts, and that people want to see that sort of journalism. It's been really heartening to see that. So I actually think like I've had a really positive experience from the feedback on, you know, just renewing my faith in investigative journalism. That that people want to see more of this, and they want to see, you know, papers doing more, you know, spending the time and spending the effort and and doing that. Um, we surprised at how big. I mean, you start off. Yeah, we were surprised about how big your reveal was. Like the the amount of money. Did you have any sense when you were starting out that we were talking, you know, four hundred and fifty million? No, it's plus. interesting. The thing that, that that I started out with, and I did a story in two thousand sixteen where I I wasn't sure actually what Donald Trump owned and didn't own, and I spent months doing. A, we we actually hired a firm at the time to do a property search on all of his properties in the United States to find out which ones he owned and didn't own because there was always this like, you know, feeling in New York that he said he was worth all this and he actually was worth nothing. And it was interesting because I ended up, I sort of started out kind of more on the, he wasn't worth a lot. And it doesn't mean because he inherited all this money that he's worth something, those are two different issues. But to see the magnitude of wealth that was transferred from one generation to the other, was a really big surprise to me that at least he, he could have lost it all in a day in a casino, but that he, over his lifetime, got hundreds of millions of dollars from his father. That was actually a surprise to me that when we actually, you know, figured that out at the end and all the loans. Yeah, so that in, in a macro sense, to see it doesn't go to his net worth. We still have no clue on his net worth. But to see that he inherited that much money was. I'm sorry. Do you yeah. think he's a billionaire? I don't know. Yeah. I'm careful about, yeah, yeah, I don't know. 
just a citizen, but a media consumer. Um, and I enjoyed your piece very much. Thank you. Um, you mentioned Marianne, his hmm? sister, who's a federal court judge. Yeah. And that it was her filings uh, as part of her hearings trigger, that, yeah. that, ge that gave you an important set of leads. Yeah, what about her? How come you suggested that, the, in both in your article and today, that the all Trump and his siblings were all complicit in what was fraud and tax evasion. I assume you made an effort to talk to the judge. Um, yeah. She may not have talked to you, yeah. but it seems to me that she's in a an almost impossible position as a federal judge to be swept up in a tax fraud and tax evasion yeah. case. Yeah. And it's a really interesting question. And um, I think there's been at least some complaints lodged against her. She's now a senior retired judge. But we, in the story, we lay out sort of levels of what people knew. Donald Trump and Robert Trump, his brother, definitely knew about all county and knew about um, the flow of money and what was going on. Marianne Trump, Barry, the, the judge, was a recipient, and it's unclear to us exactly what she knew about it. Um, and the same with Elizabeth Trump, the other sibling. So I think there's different levels of complicity among the four. Um, but there is proceeds of crime. But there are, and I, I don't know where those, we're looking into that, is it, is it, you know, <laughs> what's going to happen with her. Um, and she, between 18 months and 19, 80, 98, 99, made more than a million dollars from all county, the scam, the sham corporation that we uh, that we talked about. It's incredible. And that was at the tail end of it. So who knows how many millions of dollars were being drawn down in the, in the previous years. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Oops. Hello. I am a journalist at Ryerson University. And I just wanted to ask, if Trump is found guilty for fraud, what would be the penalty for his actions? At this point, because the criminal penalties have told, it would be civil penalties. So it would be there would be either fines, fines, um, fines with interest, and penalties. So those are the three kind of main ranges of it. Um, that you know, as far as the IRS and state and city people would yeah, be well, concerned in terms of is, uh, can they can they recoup money and how much and then fines criminal. and interest. Thank you. Prosecution at the DOJ and, uh, Hello, uh, I'm a political scientist specialist at U of T, and I just had a question for you. Um, these past two years, the White House administration in particular, the president, seemed to have a different headline in the news every day. And as someone whose job it is not only to inform the public, but to serve that watchdog function, um, how do you feel seeing, on one hand, the very positive response to your story, and obviously this great journalism, which you've, you and your um, co-workers have done, but also the White House administration's ability to throw so many headlines and kind of have this big smoke screen. And I guess the real question which I'm asking is, are you ever afraid that your work might get lost in like the strange noise of this weirdly effective um, PR machine that they're running out of the White House? No, it's, they're incredibly effective at it. I mean, I think you can say a lot of things about Donald Trump. The one thing you can never underestimate is his ability to control the conversation. Um, and it is frustrating to see it. Even today, you know, we just woke up, was it this morning? Yeah. With the midterms? Seems That's like right. a long time ago, and already the conversation's changed, and the Attorney General's now out, and, you know, the, every day the, the conversation changes, and it's frustrating. I think Does that ever discourage you? Every day, yeah. <laughs> every day. Well, thank it's you for your perseverance. I don't think it's, I think you're seeing a, a rise of, 
not only like and I talked a little bit about it about just the attention span of consumers and and this this world that we've been working to I think for a long time where a lot of it now is TV driven and it's soundbite driven from where we were and the, the inability I think of people to have a meaningful um, dialogue I mean it's, it's it's a really it's really frustrating yeah as a consumer of news and somebody who I appreciate that all of you have turned out tonight to actually have a meaningful conversation about an important story. It's a rare thing. Thank you. Kowski, I'm a freelance business journalist. So what? This might be a little inside baseball. What? I am curious to know how you actually wrote this thing. There's three of you, 14,000 words, thousands of documents. How did you sit down to put this to the page trying to forget that no <laughs> um we it's interesting we we started out and it, it, it's a good sort of journalism question because we how do you tell a story we had in it you know we could have told it in three stories we could have done a serial on it and done two three stories um and we started um to outline it and we started to outline it as three different stories and we realized in that process that um, it, it ultimately, it was one investigative narrative about, a, it was about a father and a son and their relationship. And we didn't feel, cause we were, you know, it, sometimes an investigative narrative when you're trying to map these things out, we'll have a, you know, an anecdotal lead. We happen to have a pretty hard news lead that he'd committed fraud. And we didn't get to the fraud until kind of midway through the second or third story. So we realized we couldn't really run a story on page one of the New York Times saying, well, there's a fraud here, but you have to wait till tomorrow to get to it. So <laughs> as we were sort of mapping all this out, we we saw that it, it... Tish James just recently... referred Trump's frauds to Lent Trump organization to the IRS and DOJ smiley face massive fraud comma every type of fraud imaginable exclamation point he also got subpoenaed today lol popcorn naturally became one story and it was a beast for the New York he has to go to a deposition about when the time he raped a journalist in a department store Exclamation point. Ha ha ha. Plus, the DOJ is probably going to charge him with espionage and obstructing justice. LOL. Ever since August 8th, the news cycle has been much more pleasant than the long hard years of a nightmarish
Trump regime, comma, hopefully we will never ever get that close to fascism again, period. Everybody make some noise, make sure that Trump is barred from office under the 14th Amendment, dash dash, which prohibits insurrectionists from holding public office, exclamation point, smiley face. Plus, comma, don't forget the hundreds of GOP traitors who need to be immediately removed and also barred from ever holding office again. Exclamation point. Then times to deal with it round three. Exclamation point. Then we will see a happy ending. Smiley face. pages of the paper um and i think it's one of the longest stories the new york times has ever written it was a huge commitment by them to do it but i think when they when they saw it and we kind of was a bit of an evolution of everybody talking about it but in order to do this we had to get um we had to get editors and and lay out people and everybody on board to do this and how are we going to lay it out and how are we going to tell this story and it, it's it sort of was a beast that they'd never seen before so it was a difficult difficult process but I think I think we did the right thing I think there's some things you know the the scene about the the will scene I would have loved to have written that in a separate story where you know the, the son comes in and tries to change his father's will that's just such an incredible moment that I think you know would have been great to have let breathe a little bit in a separate story but I think it worked in the story so there were some hard choices that we had to make but I think it that's sort of how it how it came to be once we started to outline it, it became very obvious that it was one story. Do you have any statistics? Because it is a bold decision for, for any publication to, instead of breaking it up, making it. Yeah. Trump committed you know, easy, more, more bites, you know, yeah. uh, that they do either on TV or even on. We actually did a takeout. We did a, we did a, you know, we actually did a summary story of the story, which was a really right. rare and thing. The, yeah. the real takeaways. Yeah. Do, do, do you have any uh, statistics or any sense of how well read it was um, uh, on the website and in the paper and any sense of how many people consumed, how many minutes they actually spent going through oh, it all? I should have pulled, we, I could have, I mean, we, I know more than we had at one point weeks ago more than 5 million hits, but it's still getting more than 100,000 hits a week. Wow. Um, just in the statistics, we can pull up two-week windows. Right. Um, and I and bet the consumption is showing that people are reading. You can yeah, actually see that really, they're going all the way through it. They were really glued they to patients. it, and it's a, yeah, it's I mean, a it was a good, was, yeah. It was a good decision. Yeah. Next question. Uh, my name is Ryan Lewenza. I'm just in uh, finance, so not uh, journalism. Uh, first, I want to commend you and your team for the diligence of the work and the report. It was uh, amazing, and I hopefully you'll have uh, awards in your future on it. Uh, my question is, what do you think the end game is for Donald Trump? My view is it doesn't end well, but I don't know what it looks like. I don't know if he's behind bars. Oh, I don't man. know if he just quits. I don't know. Do you have a view 
of how this all plays out over the next couple of years? Or is it, does it, he just goes unscathed and he goes off into the, uh, uh, to the rise in the distance? I can't imagine it, N. Wells, but there's a lot of things I can't imagine that have happened. I mean, it's sort of a, you know, I mean, I think we've shown that a lot of the things they did were out of an episode of The Sopranos. Yeah. And, you know, still kind of nothing's happened. But I think, I don't know, I like to believe that eventually, you know, things come to the top and that something will happen. But I don't know. I mean, it's a hard question. I don't know. You know, kind of like to hope for, you know, know, what we saw we couldn't believe. And I really hope, you know, we're working off of tax returns that were, you know, from Fred Trump's empire. It gave us some visibility into a lot of stuff that Donald Trump did. And I really hope that his tax returns are released because I think... Hope she nails him for defamation, exclamation point. One of the main things they will show is the same tax shenanigans that we saw in the documents we had on Fred Trump's empire on his. I think that's why that he doesn't want them released. I think that's going to be one of the big reveals that we'll see if they're ever released. Uh, Following up on the Sopranos, um, (laughs) (laughs) did you find connections in your work with what's going on with the um, Russian billionaire class and so forth? We didn't. Okay. No. No. Yeah, we didn't. Not to preclude it's not there, but we didn't find it. Uh, hi, I'm just a concerned citizen. Um, I have a question in terms of what your excellent reporting really showed is that white collar crime is really not investigated or prosecuted, yeah. and what you would recommend to to resolve that because a lot of people are getting away with a lot of things that hurt people that are not yeah. prosecuted. Yeah. Part of what the story did lay bare is that the IRS is not, you know, they if they find something. It's often settled, you know, for a small amount. And I, that was a really frustrating thing we saw over and over and over. A lot of what we saw, um, a lot of what we saw was illegal. A lot of what we saw was also legal and dubious, and it was settled. And we saw some of the settlement. We have the IRS documents where it was settled for, you know, not a lot of money. It's frustrating. And this is coming at a time where less and less money is being put into enforcement um, at the IRS in the United States. And since there's no one here, if I could follow up. Just yeah, no, yeah. Because um, with the Republicans keeping the Senate, they have even more control over the ju- judiciary, which yeah. means that if the appetite is not there to prosecute, it probably won't be. So what can regular people hope for in terms of people being held accountable? I, I would. I don't have an, op- an optimistic view of that. I think actually less. So, I mean, I think that you're looking at an agency with the IRS that relies on, you know, people who, you know, like me get a paycheck that pay taxes and there's less money being put into enforcement on the wealthiest individuals in our society. And it's a problem. I mean, you, you, they rely on people, like they're, they're either worried about it or they're automatically deducted in order to pay taxes in the United States. And okay, thank you. Know, you. It's troubling. Yeah. Final question here. Hi, my name is Paul LaBelle. Uh, we've all learned a lot of new words from Donald Trump. One of them is that Molly went for me. Are you going to be looking at that? Is the, plan, is the Times planning on investigating all his benefits that he's getting from being in office? 
In terms of the emoluments or just writ large? Well, both. It's just, I, I guess the question is, do you need the income tax returns to, to do that? Can you investigate, like, the hotels and things like yeah, that? Yeah, and I think we've done a lot of reporting on that, and I think there's a lot of stuff not only on the emoluments question in terms of what's coming in, but also just on, you know, there's great stories to be done on the benefits that the family receives from from just being in office that come to them. So I think both of them, I think we've done a lot of stuff on the emoluments already, but it's a great thread to continue. And I think as the courts continue to push forward on some of that, some cases are going forward, it's gonna be a great area to watch. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, That's a good point I wanna I want to end on. Uh, we started with you as a young reporter, intern uh, at the Calgary Herald, and then you'll end up covering business here in the Wall Street Journal, covering Trump real estate and his the famous tax return story. And then you do um, this bombshell that I think has enthralled five million people and, and counting um, on the web and, and people here. Um, I know you can't reveal your, your secrets, but what is next for uh, Suzanne Craig? What, what, what kinds of stories are you trying to work on in the months uh, to come? I mean, I think we want to keep, I, I think that the tax return story is very rich. I mean, it's sort of a hard story to say, you know, we're going to keep you know, you're sort of hoping that more tax returns are going to come forward. Um, but I kind of believe you make your own luck and we're working to reach out to people who we think have them and hope they have our phone numbers and hope they know we have some sort of expertise in dealing with them and hope that, you know, I think lightning strikes three times at this point. So, I mean, I'm hoping that, you know, we continue to get more in and more stuff to work with. It's a bit of a, you know, open frontier right now because we don't have that. Um, but I hope that, you know, as we go forward, we get that. And in the meantime, I think we're going to ask a lot of questions on things like emoluments and benefits and other things that are coming through the door. Well, I think it's also clear you and the rest of the team, uh, David and, and Ross, have, have the street creds now on this issue. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of bigger stories are going to come from Suzanne Craig and the New York Times. A round of applause for Suzanne Craig. Closing remarks. Suzanne will be around a bit for the reception, so you could uh, uh, pester her with even more questions. <laughs> uh, my name is Natalie Kirby. I'm president and executive director of the Canadian Journalism Foundation. And this has been uh, just an outstanding behind-the-scenes look. Just give me a break. I mean, that was just the farthest thing from the truth. So let's try to break it down uh, to the audience. I hope most of you took the time to read um, over a long, long weekend, um, the, the um, <laughs> all fourteen thousand words, fourteen thousand yeah. words, and there's some great so other social media video that you can watch on the New York Times site. Some of them narrated yeah. by Sue that will take you through what the big reveals are. But we're tonight, over the next uh, fifteen or twenty minutes, are going to take you through with the leading expert. What were some of the big things you need to know about how Donald Trump really got his riches? So let's start with the, the most famous one where he yeah. said, I just got a million dollars from my dad, that's all. Um, what, what in the end was the total number you were able to, uh, to piece together about what he really got? From so he did dad? get a million dollar loan from his father and he got a million dollar loans many times over. He got 60 some million dollar loans. It was 60, at least $60 million in loans, and that's in real, real dollars. Um, 
over that we could at least track and i'm sure it was more than that and then he got more than 400 million dollars over his lifetime starting at least when he was three up until today where he's still profiting off of his father's empire through the sale of uh it's a housing complex it's the largest i wonder why trump is such a financial black hole question mark he didn't get a million dollars from his father he got 400 million and he was a millionaire at the age of three exclamation point where does all his money go question mark where does it what does he spend it on question mark federally subsidized housing complex in the United States called Starrett City. His father had an interest in it, and to this day there'll be checks coming to Donald Trump in the White House from that investment. And it, it was a huge amount, of 400 plus million dollars and 60 million dollars in loans, many of which were forgiven or had, you know, the interest was never paid or... And we'll get into some of the other yeah. tricks that they use. So we're talking about over $460 million total that, that he gets. Um, what's Donald Trump's wealth when he's three years old? He takes billions of dollars out in loans, comma, doesn't pay it back, comma, we taxpayers do, exclamation point. By then, he's pretty much a mil he's set. He's a, almost a millionaire at that level, just at three years old. He gets at that at that at, in that year, at three years old, he's getting the equivalent of a doctor's salary just from the lease payments underneath the, the building complex that I mentioned um, in Brooklyn Beach Haven, just in the lease payments that his father's paying. And um, by the time he's nine or ten, right. you know, he keeps going. Yeah. And I think there's a figure. What what what's his worth at eight? Eight, nine, or ten. I Several think million dollars. Several yeah, million yeah, dollars yeah, worth. Yeah, yeah. Then it becomes the. This becomes the the foundational the foundational lie. What's interesting I found is that in your reporting and in some of the interviews you've done 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 since, in the 1980s and the 1990s, the media was largely uncritical yeah. of this real estate tycoon. He appears on Dick Cavett, and interestingly, the New York Times your own newspaper, yeah. can you talk about the article that the New York Times does, which in many ways becomes the the root of that yeah. myth? What, what's interesting about the story that we did to me is the, the idea that that he was worth all this. And we, we started to call it the foundational lie. It's like the first lie that's committed. And when we started to trace back sort of where this started, um, I don't know if the New York Times had the first story, but the first significant story that was done on, on Donald Trump um, that we could find was in the New York Times in 1976, and it was incredible. This is a Donald Trump at this point. He's in his mid-20s. He just graduated from war, and he's working for his father. He has he owns nothing other than he's working for his father, and he takes the reporter around. He's showing this New York Times reporter around New York, and he's showing him this building and that building. He's like, this is my building and this is my job. And he's taking them around in a Cadillac that's, you know, his father's leasing it. And it was one building after the other. And all of it was his father's wealth. And he was claiming all of it as his own. He claimed his, his net worth to that reporter, which was attributed in that story as more than $200 million. 
Um, his tax return that year showed he made about $26,000. Um, it was a spectacular con and it was written in our style section. And that story became really significant. It was interesting when we were in the room, we would play over and over all the interviews that he gave from the 1970s to the mid 1980s. And this stuff was repeated over and over and over. And he became sort of the celebrity in New York. Some people took him seriously, some people didn't. But nobody really questioned the origins of the wealth. People knew that Fred had a lot. They didn't really know what he was worth. And he was hard to resist, and people fought the story. There was this good-looking guy. He was on the scene in New York. He was doing a lot of stuff at this point with real estate in New York. His father was backing it, which we show in the story. That wasn't necessarily reported. There was some good reporting along the way, but a lot of it wasn't, and a lot of it was celebrity-driven. And this began the foundational lie of Donald Trump that we're now still trying to unwind to this day. And it's interesting that the media, including the New York Times, yeah. is in many ways responsible for that initial foundational lie because people were so uncritical. Yeah. You start doing the criticism. You're able to document that it's not one million, but closer to 60 million in loans and 400 million plus in, in, in benefits. Um, but then you dig deeper. It's not just because many people, well, not many people, but people can have wealthy fathers who give them money and good for them. You begin to investigate that it wasn't just wealth that was passed on, but there were tax dodges um, and possibly some illegal stuff that was going on inside that empire. So talk about all county and and how important that is to understanding Trump's wealth today. Yeah. So we found along the way there was a lot of um, wealth that was passed along. We mentioned like the, 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 the payments, you know, he made them as landlord, he made them as banker. There was a lot of stuff that was done that was completely legal. There was dozens of revenue streams that we found that were um, generationally how people pass wealth from one generation to the other. And then it was we started to get into the tax returns and the confidential documents that we found. Um, we started to realize this was going way over the line in terms of, you know, not just tax avoidance, but tax evasion and tax fraud. And the main, um, the main uh, fraud that we found building supply. It has a great name because it's so innocuous. Uh, but in the, and it was incorporated in 1992, and this was a point in, um, in Fred Trump's life. Fred Trump is getting older. And it's interesting because he owned buildings that were worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And he also, he didn't believe, and he had very little debt. It was, it was incredible to see when we got into his documents. But he also was sitting on huge amounts of cash at a corporate level. All the buildings he just had so much cash sitting on them. And in 1992, just, you know, actuarially, he's at some point getting closer to death. And at the time, the children, if they were have to, if he were to die tomorrow, would have been facing a 55% estate tax on the money um, that he was sitting on. And so they came up with this, this scheme. And Fred Trump was involved in, in, you know, in the discussions on setting it up. They, they set up this company and the shareholders were Donald Trump and his siblings. And how it worked was for years, um, Fred Trump would go out and he owned all these buildings. And he would buy boilers and everything from boilers to bleach to fridges and stoves. And he would pay for them. And then one day, instead of 
um, the buildings that he owned paying for them. All county would pay for them and they would pay the same price or, you know, with What else we got? Got unbelievable. Hmm. David from the corruption of American democracy. Stream four years ago. What's the deal? Trump. Old documentary, 1991. The Trump Kushner's and American greed. Two years ago. Trauma truth and the trials of American democracy. Six months ago. Jamie Join Rockson. us this new year for new conversations at the Commonwealth Club. Bernard Osher Foundation. I couldn't find Osher Foundation in your Apple Music. This is an extraordinary treat to be able to share the afternoon with you guys, but particularly with Jamie Raskin, who is a true American hero. Um, as, uh, as you know, I'm the founder and CEO of Common Sense Media. I'm also a professor at Stanford, and I teach con law. So one of the things that makes Jamie's book so extraordinary is he is also a constitutional law professor, um, and I'm sure we're going to hear about that from him today in the conversation. But just a little background about Jamie, uh, because he's a unique member of Congress. He's had an extraordinary career. He's obviously affected all of our lives in such special ways over the past few years. But when he came into Congress in 2013 as a congressperson from Maryland, he had one of the most unique, greatest collection of skills, I think, of any congressperson that we've ever seen, that we've seen in, in, in decades. He's raised in a family in Washington, D.C. and Maryland that cared about and thought